Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode seven. And on today's programme, I talk to historian and battlefield guide, Tim Lynch, about his research into conscript morale in the British Army in the final year of the Great War. Tim spoke to me from his home in England. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in conscription and the Great War? Sure. Well, I've just recently completed the uh, the MA at, uh, at Wolverhampton. Um, I think like everybody, I grew up with an awareness of the First World War um, and uh, an interest in it. Uh, but that's developed over the years to the point where I now work part-time as a um, battlefield guide and um, I developed this, this interest in not so much um, how we remember things, but why we remember things the way we do. So I'm interested in the mythology around the First World War, which led me into the idea of conscripts, because I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the paradox at the core of military history, which is basically that First World War conscripts were unwilling second-class troops, but then we've got the Second World War, we've got Arnhem, Kohima, we've got um, the sound of the, uh, the losses at Imjin in Korea. Fantastic, wonderful. But they were conscripts. So this idea has developed and this mythology has developed around conscripts based on an idea from the First World War, which has been time and again proved to be incorrect. So I want to look at, um, particularly from my family, I had a great uncle who was uh, a pre-war territorial out to France in 1915. His younger brother is, uh, he arrives in the army in um, November of 1917 as part of what we would consider to be the conscript army. So I wanted to know, was there a difference between them? Was one more motivated than the other or was it just age? So it's about looking at, um, you know, what is a conscript and why do we remember them the way that we do? Which leads me neatly onto my second question is, can you tell us about who these conscripts were? What was conscription and how does it fit into the wider sort of story of recruitment into the British Army during the Great War? At the start of the Great War, uh, we have this, this idea that everybody and his dogs suddenly ran off down to the recruitment office and joined up. Well, no, it's not quite as simple as that. It, it's a very, very complex uh, process that's going on. But one of the, the problems with that kind of thing is that it's, it's fine having people running around on salty planes, sticking bayonets into, into sandbags, but some of them are better employed in their old job, making things that go bang. You know, we've got skilled workers who are joining up, who were into the war effort in the role that they already had. So you end up with soldiers actually going back to their old jobs in uniform. There's, uh, there's an entire battalion of Liverpool Dockers, for instance, and they, they are in the army, but doing their old job as dockers. There are engineers who have to be recalled back to their place of work. So the myth grows that um, the volunteer is, is this manly guy who is patriotic, does his duty, recognises what he needs to do, protects his homeland, but it ignores the fact that some people were needed where they were. Some people had 
businesses, jobs, families, they couldn't afford to join up. Some people wanted to join up, but they didn't meet the health restrictions. And what conscription did was basically say, well, everybody's joined up and now we'll manage where you work. And it's a very effective system. That's why the Europeans have been using it for centuries. The whole thing about the British Army being the scum of the earth was part of a debate that Wellington was having about conscription to bring in a better class of soldier. British soldiers have always been seen as like the thing that you did if you couldn't do anything else. Suddenly we've got a massive increase in manpower, but how do you effectively manage it? How do you use it? How do you keep the economy going? And what conscription does is allows the government to then plot and plan. So uh, with my great uncle looking at his draft, you can see that they're all born within a month of each other. That most of them were born within two weeks of each other. So by 1917, the process of getting people into the military, trained and out to France, has become so slick that it's almost like a production line because they know about the levels of manpower that they're dealing with and they can manage it, which is why step one in World War II, bringing conscription. It's the most effective way of managing what you've got. It's not, as a lot of people seem to think, a way of rounding up all the shirkers. It's not a way of putting it under people's heads and saying, you have to join, because as my research has shown, a lot of them would have joined anyway. So why is it important to consider the morale and motivation of conscripts in the context of the First World War? From 1916 onwards, we have conscripts coming into the army. And what we have is their performance being judged by people who don't like them. Simple as that. They've been condemned in the papers as shirkers, as cowards, as, as people who don't want to fight, who won't do their duty. So a lot of the guys who had joined up earlier didn't want to be associated. In fact, after the war, some of the, uh, the veterans' organisations wouldn't allow conscripts to join them. So you've got conscripts coming in, joining a unit in the field, and you've got to think, well, how are they being integrated? If they're joining the battalion that is full of people who don't like them, what chance have they got? But what we see when we look at uh, performance is that actually by sort of mid-18, we have got a very, very slick thing where they're coming in motivated, willing to get on with the job, and able to get on with the job. So they're able to, like in, in the case of um, uh, 187 Brigade of 67 Division, which is what I studied, they're able to take massive casualties but still be effective within a week, two weeks, if you define it as the willingness to, to engage or, as I'll put it, to engage It's about the individual's ability, bringing with him a skill set, a willingness and an identification. So conscript morale is, is one of those, uh, instead of this, doesn't want to serve. So what we've done here is created this this kind of means that we're not interested in them. Nobody studied them. Nobody studied the group, not to any real depth anyway. And we've just taken as read the comments made about them by other people, by senior officers at the time. And that's one of the problems with, with military history. You know, a veteran said this, therefore that must be true. Therefore, it becomes part of the orthodoxy. But, um, you know, you, you get guys saying, well, by this stage, the conscripts came from anywhere and they could be sent anywhere. This idea that it's just 
like random and there's no connection. There's a complete misfit between the, the conscripts as an individual and all the esprit de corps, regional identification, all that kind of stuff that the, the panels had, for example. But actually, Alison Hine has proved that that's not the case. The conscript units were every bit as local identity, uh, as, as one to, to identify locally as anybody else. So what I'm getting at and what I'm working on is looking at this idea that actually what we need to do is to move away from a top-down um, institutional view and actually look at the conflict as the individual and the way that the conflict views his role in the war, which largely is more about labour history than it is about military history. So when you talk about labour history, you, you're talking about sort of the history of the jobs that many of these conscripts would have been involved in before they joined up. Um, I'm talking about the attitudes that come from the jobs that they did before they joined up. So these guys were, were from industrial areas where they used to working as part of a team. So working as part of a team in the job, it, it's fine. But the job of a soldier is to fight. But the majority of the time, they're not fighting. They're digging ditches. They're doing fatigues. They're doing other stuff. But guys were bringing with them the attitudes that they'd learnt in the workplace. You know, nobody salutes an, an employer. And there's a big difference between obedience and subservience. So these were guys who were coming in, not just the, the conscript, but also guys coming in into the TA and, and um, to some extent, the service battalions, were coming in with the attitude of, we're here to do a job of work. You treat us as a fair employer and we will do the job. If you don't, we will take whatever action we can. So particularly late in the war, you start to get mass disobedience, um, insubordination, that's what's been coming up more and more in the court martial records. A lot of the guys who joined in 1415 were doing their military training in the morning and then going home at night because there wasn't accommodation for them. It's no different to clocking on, clocking off from a job. So they come in with an expectation that the army hadn't encountered before. The army was used to guys who just did what they were told, when they were told. These guys came in with the attitude of, yeah, tell us what to do, and as long as it's fair, we'll do it. If not, we'll dodge out of it. We'll dodge up work, whatever. I didn't join up to dig a ditch. I didn't join up to peel potatoes. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when it comes to, to labour history, is coming in with a very different attitude to the pre-war soldiers who came into a closed environment where they were going off to um, India or wherever, where their sole contact would be the battalion. So they become very much institutionalised battalion. That is the limit of their world. Actually, during the First World War, were guys who were just taking a temporary break from their civilian lives. And so they're coming in thinking, right, I'm going to do this job, job and finish, once it's over, and back to, back home, wife and kids, all the rest of it. So we have to look at it more in terms of how did they see what they were doing, as opposed to how did their officers see what they were doing. And there's a very interesting split there, because you've got a middle-class attitude, which is about honour, patriotism, duty, imperialism, yada, yada, yada. Whereas a working-class view is survival and getting on with it. So there's very little coming out about the actual working class soldiers, absolutely tiny amounts about conscript soldiers, but an outpouring of middle class educated officers and what their opinion of the men were. And it's almost like, you know, some sort of travelogue 
because when you read some of these these accounts, every every soldier has to have a really exaggerated accent. It's so here be a Irish show. It's oh hi man Scots or whatever it might be. That's a really exaggerated thing. Even when we look at uh, Frank Richards, the, um, the kind of famous accounts written by a soldier in the ranks, so pre-war and war, they're actually ed- um, edited by Robert Graves, his officer, who takes a third of the money and who changes the words to make Richards sound a bit thicker than he is. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the, uh, the labour history. It's about looking at how labour relations, class relations in society were reflected in attitudes towards the war and the motivation and morale of the men who fought it. Feels like a very long answer. Does that make sense? That does make sense. No, because I, I think a, a number of things fall out of that. And firstly, do you think, do you think in a way, you're, what you're talking about is the attitude of the civilian soldier versus the pre-war regular soldier? Um, and is there a difference between those civilian soldiers who volunteered in 14, 15, 16, and conscripts who came in in 17 and 18. I'm sort of thinking about the different way that they might have been motivated. I'm um, obviously there might be a lot of parallel or crossover, but I just wonder whether you, you found anything distinct for conscripts being a, a key motivator as opposed to the early war volunteers. I think there's a very interesting question to be raised about people refer to the wartime volunteers as citizen soldiers. Now, what does that say about attitudes towards pre-war soldiers. Are they not citizens? Are they completely divorced from, from society? But what we've got is, prior to, uh, to the outbreak, there is a massive, massive um, anti-European um, attitude in, in the media. Um, there's lots and lots of invasion stories, invasion propaganda. Um, might be the French, might be the Russians. H.G. Wells has the Martians having a pop, but generally it's the Germans. The Germans are coming, the Germans are going to take over this country, the Germans are out to get it. Absolute anti-German, almost paranoia. So when people are joined up in 1914, they're not so much um, joined up because they, they just think it's a jolly war, let's, let's be fine. They see it as a war of survival. And in, in Jewish um, history, there is the concept of the, the commanded war and the voluntary war. Now we can see the, the voluntary war as being you know, the British colonization of, of other countries. Now for the working man, that's imperialism, not really something that we're interested in, not something that benefits us, don't care. The commanded war is one that requires, it's an existential threat, it requires everybody to respond. And I think that's what you get in 1914, is this perception that the Germans are going to invade, therefore, it is a very real threat to home and half. And particularly, you see this, the spike in, in recruiting after Mons when it looks like it's, it's a very real risk that the Germans are going to win. I don't think that goes away. When you think about um, the guys who have joined up in 1718, they're coming into this knowing about gas, knowing about trenches, knowing about mud, knowing about the casualty rate because they've seen it all. So in many ways, the guys who are coming in later are actually probably even more motivated, if anything, to do their bit. So when we talk about conscript motivation, why do we know so little about it? Is it because they've been written out of history or are there just very, very few accounts that can really give us a good idea? 
it's um, a little from column A, a little from column B. What we have is a situation where people didn't want to read about conscripts because conscripts weren't the heroes. This image of them as some sort of folk devil, skiving, cowardly guy who is trying to evade service and not do his bit was very, very powerful. And so we get very, very few conscript um, memoirs. And the ones we do get are absolutely not typical at all. So we've got Stephen Graham, who was a pre-war journalist, conscripted, and he's friends with the um, um, commandant of the guards. So he gets his discharge early so he can write a book ostensibly about his experiences, but what he actually does is he just does a very potted history of what the guards were doing before he got there. There are other people who join up, but they're either um, um, journalists looking for a good story. We've got um, a guy called F.A. Voigt. And Voigt is, is well known. His uh, book is Calmed Out. And he talks about his experiences um, in various, various units, including the artillery. What he forgets to mention, because he's usually referred to as Frederick Voigt, is that he served as Fritz Voigt. And Fritz Voigt was in a special unit of the Middlesex Regiment, a Labour company, made up of men from enemy alien backgrounds. So again, not entirely representative of the wider group. So it's not until post-Second World War that you start to get uh, accounts coming out from guys who had actually been conscripts. F.E. Noakes is a, is a good one. Um, F.A.J. Taylor very good. But Taylor doesn't write until 1977. And by that time, the whole thing has become kind of ingrained. What we do have is lots and lots of books by guys who joined up in 1914-15 and make a big, big fuss about it. You know, I didn't need to be forced in. I, I joined up because I wanted to, blah, blah, blah. Um, when you read the very few conscripts uh, accounts out there, they very often start off with, I tried to join up 10 times before, but I just got kicked out. There's always a try and excuse why they haven't joined up before. So that's become part and parcel of, of this whole thing of um, the only people that we can rely on or that we can use to tell us about these guys are people who look down on them. And what, what we've got is this amazing thing where people who try to avoid service as conscientious objectors you can't chuck a brick in a bookshop without hitting something about them. You know, page after page after page on conscientious objectors, but nothing about the men who actually did serve. And by the way, on, on the topic of conscientious objectors, I do think there's a very interesting question to be asked of whether perception of them should change post-pandemic. Were these guys with deep, deep moral ideas or were they basically anti-maskers? That's a debate for a, a, another time, but certainly I think we're starting to get this slight change, this interest in, in looking at, um, at the First World War more in terms of, you know what, we actually got some things right. We did win, and maybe we need to look at why we won. That leads me neatly on to my next question is being, well, what military impact did conscripts have on the British Army in 1918? When you you break it down. One of the things that, one of the complaints about um, conscripts is that they were untrained and unprepared. But there's a, a very good question asked by a guy called Patrick Dennis, who says, untrained for what? 
and by whose standards. We've got to bear in mind that we're looking at, at guys who are being judged by men who went through a truncated training um, syllabus. By 1917-1918, there is a very, very intensive course being done that is far more involved than pre-war regular training. So the guys that are coming in are guys who have not just skills as a rifleman, but also as bombers, as rifle bombers, Lewis bombers. They're able to shift around, be more adaptable than the riflemen of, of say, 1914. When we look at, at my particular brigade, you know, we're looking at a brigade of, of three battalions. So what? We're looking about, what, 3,000 men? Between June and October of 1918, those 3,000 men take 4,365 other rank casualties, 150%. And yet they're in action time after time after time. Sometimes within just a few days, they've managed to absorb a new intake, push on and start again. So a lot of the ideas about, about cohesion, about the importance of regimental spirit, all that kind of stuff, is proved wrong by 1918. In fact, it's proved wrong before that, because if you think, if the army really genuinely believed that regimental spirit was a thing that kept people going in battle, they wouldn't move people from regiment to regiment as the need arose. What you get is what, um, what we might call um, kind of instant trust, where they're assumed to know what they need to know and trusted to know what they need to know. And so they can get on with the job and they're recognised as being able to get on with the job. So they don't need the same level of, of micromanagement. The army's now evolved to a point where they can say, we want you to pop over there and take that village without having to say, and you'll be at that hedge by such and such a time and that tree by such and such a time and, and so on. So what it brings is a wide variety of skills into a streamlined system that actually processes the guys and turns out, churns out, if you like, capable soldiers who are every bit as motivated as their earlier uh, counterparts, their older brothers, the dads, and able to manage that and keep it going, which allows the momentum of the, the final 100 days campaign. And when you look at that, it's been fought very largely by guys who, in some cases, were considered too young to have fought any earlier. The age for obviously services slightly reduced in April of uh, 1918, so that as long as you've had six months, six months of training, you can go overseas at 18 years and six months, off you go. So in that respect, conscription is an area that could tell us a, an awful lot about what the army got right versus just rehashing where they went wrong. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work on conscripts? Um, well, my book, um, They Did Not Grow Old, is available in all good bookshops and quite a few bad ones. Um, I've seen it advertised in Abe at ridiculous prices. And at those prices, if you're willing to buy it, I'll come around and read it to you. Um, my dissertation for the MA was, was about this subject. Um, not if anybody wants to have me, I have to send them a copy of that. Uh, and I'm on Tim Lynch 656 on Twitter. So just DM me and I'll send a copy. Tim, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom.